Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Growing up with three brothers where we're all a year apart meant there were lots of dares, some scares, and even some moments when we're reminiscing, like, how are we all still alive? In fact, I remember when I was six years old, we were conducting experiments, scientific experiments at that around our house with electrical outlets. It was the 70s. We were poorly supervised. <laughs> and we were pu- my brothers and I were pushing things into these electrical outlets to see what the outcome would be. Cause and effect, right? So paper, wood, plastic. And then my older brother dared me to put a fork into the electrical outlet. And in the name of science, it was an illuminating experience. It had shocking outcomes. <laughs> There was black all around the receptacle, all over the fork. And and me, thank you for asking, (laughs) I learned a valuable lesson, a very valuable lesson actually, about power. I learned that when you're dealing with power, put a little respect on it. I learned that when you're dealing with power, how you connect to power, there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. And you better do it the right way because it could have devastating consequences if you connect the wrong way. So today's passage is we are in this journey of a series called Reassembling Community. We're talking about how God formed community in the Garden of Eden in the first creation. And that community broke as we elevated our individual wants and needs over the community actually. And you see throughout scripture, God taps on the shoulder, his people to be an example to the rest of the world of how a community should operate, and and they failed to do that. And then Jesus came and established and was reassembling a community that we're reading about in the book of Acts. So fair warning today, the passage of scripture that one of our elders, Silverina Silveratnam, is going to read in just a moment for us, is uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable portion of scripture. One that, you know, if you had your choice, you might just skip over. But we're going to lean into it, because that's kind of our custom here at One Church Deal. If it feels a little awkward, let's lean in. Let's see what God has to say. So we're going to hear from the scriptures. It's found in Acts chapter 4. It starts at the back end of that, right into Acts chapter 5. Silverina, would you lead us? Reading from Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. There was, however, a man named Ananias married to a woman called Sapphira. He sold some property and with his wife's knowledge kept back part of the price. He brought the rest and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias said, Peter, why did the Satan fill your heart to make you tell a lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it was still yours, it belonged to you, didn't it? And when you sold it, it was still in your power. Why did you get such an idea in your heart? It isn't humans you lied to, it's God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. Everyone who heard about it was scared out of their wits. The young men got up, took him away, wrapped up his body, and buried him. 
After an interval about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter spoke to her. Tell me, he said, did you sell the land for this much? Yes, she replied. That was the price. So why, Peter answered, did you agree together to put the Holy Spirit to the test? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out too. And at once she fell down at his feet and died. The young men were just coming in, and they found her dead. So they took her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear came across the whole gathering and on all who heard about these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Silver. Acts chapter 5 is a difficult passage. In 30 years of pastoring, I've not taught on it in a public gathering like this. Because you need to provide a lot of background around it. I'm not going to get to all of it. Uh, We'll see if we can get some to you later. But we're going to dive into an uncomfortable passage. I'll tell you, it's uncomfortable for me for a couple of reasons. (laughs) I think there's an obvious one in the text. But it feels a little Old Testament-ish. Do you know what I mean? If you've read the older part of the Bible, you know exactly what I mean. It feels very uncomfortable. It feels very incongruent with the person of Jesus that I follow. I don't see Jesus going around striking people down. In fact, his disciples want to call down fire. And he says, whoa, 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 guys. No, 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 chill, chill. Says it kind of like that. And the Greek is a little lost there. But he's, he's, he basically puts a damper on all of their, their vengeance and their, their wrath in that moment. And so you come against this text in chapter 5, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. In order to understand what's going on, you've got to remember the context. So the context is actually found in the last part of chapter 4. Remember, when Luke wrote this, there were no chapter divisions or verse divisions. It was one text. And in chapter 4, you see what's going on in the community there. It's pretty special. What's happening is you see elevated this value of generosity. Generosity is marking this community. So a follower of Jesus, you can tell a follower of Jesus because they're generous people. And a community of Jesus is a generous community. See, I'm dyslexic, and spelling in front of you is going to make me a little nervous, but I'm going to make sure I get it right here. There's generosity that is marking this community. This is a key aspect of uh, the reassembled community that Jesus pulls back together. They will be generous. They'll be known for their generosity. And in the context of that, in chapter 4, verse 36, we're introduced to this man, and his name is Barnabas. And Barnabas is a generous man. He embodies this quality of generosity. There we go. See, he's smiling. And he sells all of his land, and he donates it all, all of the proceeds. He gives it to the apostles to redistribute to those that are in need. And as you can imagine, this brought some shine to Barnabas because people noticed that gift. But Barnabas is a unique personality. I think he's the type of person that was probably more embarrassed by the attention he got from giving that gift than not. See, he's known as, in Scripture, as the great encourager or the son of encouragement is sometimes the tag name that goes with Barnabas. That means he loved putting the spotlight on others, not himself. Encouragers are usually like that. Have you ever noticed that? They can't wait to build you up. And often, they don't like to talk about themselves. And he has this gift of encouragement. He's just a great gift, a real encourager. Now, in contrast, there's another couple that we're introduced to. We just read about them in chapter 5. There's Ananias, and there is his wife, Sapphira. Now, they too are part of this community. And they are watching what Barnabas does 
And they think, listen, look at the shine he gets. We'd like some of that shine for us. But they want the shine without the cost. They want the podium without, with a shortcut. And so what they decide to do is they're going to sell their land just like Barnabas, just like Barnabas. Do you see that, guys? Just like Barnabas. But they're going to keep some of the money and then give some of the money. But they're going to pretend like they gave all of the money. See what's happening in there? They're a little, little switch and bait there. We're going to pretend like we gave it all, but we're only going to give some of the money. Now, it's important to note, this passage is actually not about money. Generosity, sure, that starts, that's what's going on in the community there. The church is exploding, this reassembled community exploding, because they're a generous community, a loving community. Something's happening here. They want in on the shine, so they decide we're going to kind of take the shortcut around it. At heart here, though, it's not about money, because they're not compelled to give all the money. They were never instructed. They were, they were under no compulsion to give all the money from the proceeds of the sale of their property. They weren't. They, just, they wanted this. At heart of what's going on here is these two are lying. They're deceitful. They're inauthentic. And I find this disturbing because I've lied. The apostle Peter, who's presiding over this moment, he lied and denied Jesus, that he was a follower of Jesus. Did he get struck down? No. He got forgiven. He got restored. Why, are, why this then? Why such swift judgment here? What's going on in this passage? Why is this? And it, and it always inevitably makes us a little uncomfortable because like I said earlier, it harkens back to some of the things we read in the Old Testament. Some of the things I don't like. There's a story found in Joshua chapter 7. I don't like this story. It's a story about a man named Achan. He's with the children of God. They're going into the promised land. They're conquering their foes. They have a great battle of victory. There are lots of spoils and treasures left over. God says, don't touch any of it. Don't enrich yourself off of this moment. Achan, though, he likes the bling. He sees it. He takes it. He hides it. What is it about hiding and lying that's so similar? And then if you know the story, what I don't like about it, Achan did something wrong, but who gets punished? Achan, his family, and the entire community do. The community gets punished. They go into battle, they start losing wars. Why? Because of Achan's sin. Uh, his family are killed. It makes no sense. Uh, for this westernized Christian with individualistic mindsets, this makes no sense to me. Achan should be the one that's held to count for his sin, right? As Dr. Van mentioned in week one, and he's trying to help us to see that the story of Scripture is a story of a reassembled community, reassemble, God working to reassemble a community within his creation. This westernized version of Christianity wants to believe that my salvation, and by extension, my sin, is a personal matter. It's an individual matter. This is between me and God. And every time we see that, we see scripture, we see this, yeah, there is an individual aspect to that. But we see everything we do affects the community we're a part of. So when you do good, your family gets a little shine from that. And your church family gets shine from that. And when we do wrong, it affects our families. And it affects the community we're a part of. It's not personal. 
It's personal and cumulative, all at the same time. I don't like this story in Acts in Joshua chapter 7. I like less even still the story found in 2 Samuel chapter 6. In there, King David is going to move the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. He has in mind to build a temple to put the Ark of the Covenant in. If you don't know what the Ark was, it was like a box with the Ten Commandments in it, Moses' rod. It was the tangible presence of the power of God. They took this when they went into the battle first. They walked into water and the water parted in front of, I mean, the power of God is represented in the Ark of the Covenant. And David decides, return it to Jerusalem. And he puts two brothers to that task. One's name is Uzzah. And the other is Ahio, not Ahio. Yes, thank you for laughing, one person. Uh, is Uzzah. What happens is they're going along the, the road, it's rugged. The Ark of the Covenant begins to slip off the cart. And Uzzah is going to be helpful. He reaches out to stop it from coming. And something drastic happens to Uzzah when he does this. Something that feels very Old Testament-ish. Here's what happens. It says this. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. I don't like that story. I don't like any of these stories. I don't like this story because it feels like an accident. It feels like it didn't need to happen. I don't like this story because if we're honest, we can see ourselves in this story, can't we? I don't like this story because I know what it's like to want the shine without the cost. A shortcut to a podium. I know what that's like. I think we find ourselves in their sandals and it doesn't feel fair. What's going on in these uncomfortable passages that we see on display here? It plays with our idea of who God is because it feels nothing like Jesus. And Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is God and he also represents, and he said, if you want to know the Father, remember week one of our or a prayer series in the Lord's uh, Prayer, like son, like father. If you see me, you've seen the Father in heaven. So I think when you come across difficult passages, there's a couple of ways you can deal with them. One is you can avoid them. These are things that you don't normally want to teach on. They're probably things you don't normally want to read, and it's probably things you didn't come to church here today to say, I wanted to hear about Ananias and Sapphira. Tell me the one where they got struck down dead. That's a good one. No, nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see that because we can find ourselves in their shoes so easily. We know how disingenuous we can be, how unauthentic we can be, how we can even lie. So here's the thing. Instead of asking what, you know, maybe avoiding these passages or did they really happen, maybe a better question, one of my friends who's a pastor, he always asks this question about difficult passages, is how, how today is this still happening? How is this still happening and why is it here? It's in this passage, and it's important to the reassembling of this new community. You see, I think I would have been more comfortable if Ananias and Sapphira had been confronted by the Apostle Peter. They had confessed their sin, repented. The community went off to incredible unity, and the power of God just kept moving among them, and there was no swift judgment. I'd, I'd be more comfortable. In fact, if Luke is trying to build a case to make the church more attractive and God more attractive, why include this story? It doesn't endear me to God. 
doesn't endear me to want to be a part of a church community. Whoa, that's a lot to process. He includes it because it really happened and that it really reveals something very important for us as the reassembled community. I think the key is found, a New Testament scholar reflecting on this passage said this. He said, the early Christian community, without even trying, was functioning like the temple itself. That's how we understand this story. The temple was the presence of the living God. And because God resided there and his power did, you were careful around temple matters. You're careful how you interacted with that power. Here's the first lesson I think we learned from this, Acts chapter 5, is Jesus is reassembling a community that is latent with power. Latent with power. At the end of our gathering, our elders are going to come up front, and you're going to be invited if you'd like someone to pray with you, and they'll be online too with you if, if you would like. It's not because we think you coming and praying with an elder gives you some sort of cathartic relief. Somehow, emotionally, it's good to unburden yourself, although those things can be true. It's because we believe the power of God is available, and he works through human people. And when we pray and agree together here on earth, we can ask anything in his name. So we believe there's power in this moment, that the church is latent with power. This is a holy space and a holy people And we are the body of Christ, and now we are the temple of the Holy Spirit where his presence resides. But just like that fork all those years before, wouldn't have mattered if it was Mother Teresa or my brother Peter who dared me. If they had put the fork in, the results would have been the same. Power does what power does. And that's why the emphasis is on the early church and the first century church. And you see it throughout the Old Testament, And you see it in the new, that God is holy, and he calls us to holiness. Holiness is treating the things of God, the power of God, and the presence of God with respect. It's recognizing there's nothing common about this space. That God is not tameable, and he is not controllable in the least. That there's a way to interact Uh, You know, just like power, if you treat it with respect, gloves, and the proper equipment, you can connect with it. If you don't, it's dangerous. And we're to approach God with holiness. Now, it's a loaded word. In Jesus' day, the temple was the holy space, and there was protocols and procedures around it. Gentiles could not enter into that space. Women could go so far. Priests could go to the inner court. And only the high priest could go once a year into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. The Holy of Holies, where they had to honor all of the precautions and the protocols and procedures to be able to go in once a year. Such was the power of God. You were careful how you approached it. There was nothing common about it. It was not tameable. I think, though, the problem with theology in church world is a lot like politics. There are pendulum swings. Have you ever noticed that? I like how Canadians vote. Canadians don't vote people in, they vote people out. We're kind of reactionary crew, at least some Canadians. Maybe not the people in this room watching online, but but there's a a sense of, of that. There's pendulum swings to politics, and there is the theology. See, growing up in a Pentecostal church in the east coast of Canada, I understood the idea of power and holiness and always evoked fear in me. See, what we did is we took that emphasis and we put it on rules. So we had holiness rules over holiness postures. 
The rules were easy to keep if you were good at keeping rules. Some of you are good rule keepers. You couldn't drink alcohol. I know the Bible doesn't prohibit it, but we found a way to prohibit it. <laughs> you, you couldn't go to movies, because unless it was a Billy Graham movie, somehow God gave you a, a pass when you went to a Christian movie, but you weren't allowed to go into the movie theaters. You weren't allowed to play pool. These are all the rules we had. You couldn't dance, because if you dance, someone's getting pregnant. You're like, this is just how it went. There's, because all of those holiness rules were steeped in fear and what I call slippery slope thinking. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, this will happen. And it was very extreme, and it produced two types of Christians. It produced proud Christians who could keep those rules. They didn't have a problem with those external things. And anxious Christians who always felt God was angry at them. God was always disappointed with them. They were always missing the mark. Either way, that's not what holiness was meant to produce. If you're raising kids, parents, just listen to me for a moment. I left the church over those rules because I couldn't find them in the Bible and it made no sense to me. I know they were meant for good. I know there were a group of people trying to be holy, uncommon, different from the world, not getting caught up in stuff. And so all those rules, as a young adult, I left the church over them. So if you're a parent, elevate discipleship over rulership. Elevate the heart over the behavior. If God gets their heart, he'll have their behavior. But we often major on behavior modification, in especially holiness circles. Be careful. Heart transformation is the key to behavior modification. It's about heart. So that's why words like generosity boom so, hard, so well in this generation and love and connection because they're all looking to belong somewhere, to be loved somewhere, and to be accepted somewhere. And so here they are with these holiness rules and the things that I lived in and we, you know, we were trying and it was all intended for good. We wanted to connect with power in a way that was safe and you did that by being holy. You know, I often, we've quoted here many times C.S. Lewis uh, one of my favorite Christian authors. And he wrote a kid's book, and we've used this quote many times, but it's one of the best small little ways of explaining how we could have a closeness and a lovingness with God while a, a fear of God. How does that work together? And so in this story, the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, he, he has these woodland characters that can speak. They're alive. And Mr. Beaver is talking to one of the kids, Susan, and he's trying to explain this lion that roams this land that is fierce and untamable, un untamable and he's a, well, he's a fierce lion. And the, and the dialogue goes like this. It, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion, Mr. Beaver says. Oh, Susan said, I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, Mr. Beaver retorts. Who said anything about safe? Because he isn't safe. He isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We're holy because he's untamable. He's uncontrollable. You can't manipulate God. All of the agreements we try to make with him, if you do this, we'll do that. God is not moved by those things. You have no leverage in that relationship, friends. You have love in that relationship. Why does he bend down to serve us, his creation? Because he loves us. But you try to manipulate God, you're missing it. You don't understand who he is. 
He's approachable. He's loving. He's caring. He's patient. He's gentle. He's merciful. Uh, He's all of those things, and he's untamable, uncontrollable, all-powerful, awesome, fierce. He is the the power of God is fierce. And in this reassembled community, there's a new temple that God is establishing. And the power of God resides there. So, this is a great quote. I was studying this passage a lot this last week because I find this passage troubling. So my curiosity leads me to go deeper and deeper into this. And one of the writers reflecting on this passage said something I thought was quite telling and very good for us to hear today. He said this, We can't have it both ways. We watch with excited fascination as the early church does wonderful healings, stand-ups to bullying authorities, makes converts to the right and to the left, and they live lives of astonishing generosity. We love those passages and acts, and they add it to them daily, and the power of God is working. People are getting healed. People are coming to faith. It's amazing. We want all of that. And then he goes on to say this. He said, we may have to face the fact that If you want to be a community which seems to be taking the place of the temple of the living God, you mustn't be surprised if the living God takes you seriously. Seriously enough to make it clear that there's no such thing as cheap grace. We want the power of God. And if you invite the power of God, you want to be holy. You're not holy because you're holy. You're holy because you've been clothed in his righteousness. And it's because we've changed. God calls his new community holy. And because of that, how do you interact with the living God and his power? Well, one of the best ways to do that is to live a life of authenticity. In fact, Jesus is reassembling an authentic community where no one needs to and no one should hide. I think at heart, in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, not Sephora. Oh, that was better than the last one. There you go. I think this is the great sin. They lack authenticity. They're posing. They're pretending and they're hiding. I think that's the great sin in this thing. In a culture in the world, I wonder if their culture was like ours, notoriously full of spin. Smear campaigns, where in our t- t- present day and culture, people didn't even try to hide the fact that they're using half-truths to get their point of view across. They're not even hiding it anymore. I wonder if their culture in day and age, politics and celebrities lied massively, lied publicly, lied uh, uh, dramatically in dramatic fashions. I wonder if they did it back then like they do it now. I think our culture and this generation coming up is starving for authenticity, and that is a good thing. Because if anything, the body of Christ should be the one place you do not have to hide. You do not have to pose. No perfect people here. They left a long time ago. It's you and me. We are flawed, we are all broken, we walk with a limp. Why do we pretend like we don't? Is God working in your life, restoring it? Yes, but we're all people in process, right? None of you here or online have arrived, and that includes me. We are in process. This should be the one community where we can be our truest selves, the one community where we can admit our wrongs and our faults 
and not be judged for it, but helped for it. This is the one community that it should be safe to be a part of, but it's not always there, is it? I mean, I learned to hide when I was younger. I remember when I was in grade 11, and uh, the first semester, fall semester is coming to a close, and uh, I was having a lot of fun at school. Now, my parents valued education and marks, and none of those things were happening for me in that season. I had, uh, we call it cuffing in the East Coast of Canada. I think you call it skipping or cutting class. I had cuffed over 100 classes that fall. And I'll tell you how deceitful it was. I had a, a good friend, her name was Becky Crawford, who wrote all of my excuses. And when I had legit ones from my parents, because kids, if you're in the room back then, you had to write in, you couldn't email in. I'd have a written note from my mom. I would take it to Becky and get her to rewrite it so all of the handwriting would be consistent. So even the legit ones were being forged. Well, it all came to a close in January of that year when my parents went to parent-teacher day. They never went to parent-teacher day. They knew something was wrong. I knew they went to it. They came back home. They said nothing to me, which made it even worse. I am on eggshells the whole time because I know how vile I've been. I know I've been lying through my teeth. I know I'm failing three courses, which again is incredibly unacceptable in my home. All of this is about to come down on me, but nothing's coming down on me and it's worse. Just give it to me. And then we're at the dinner table and dad pronounces before the meal starts. He says, I just want to make an announcement here. Uh, We are going to get rid of the cable television. There is going to be no more cable in our home. Now, if you're not a Gen Xer and older, this is like, so what? You had Netflix. I had no Netflix, no laptop, no cell phone. This was my portal to the world. We had two channels with our aerials, and one of them was French. And I was like, what what are we going to be reduced to? We're going to be watching bowling. That's what we're going to end up doing on CBC or something. And all of a sudden, so we're all protesting. And then he shushes us all down, and he points to the end of the table, which is where I'm sitting. And he says, and you have Jonathan to thank for it. (laughs) All my siblings turned on me. Every one of them. I got to tell you, worked like a charm. My dad knew what he was doing. Years later, I asked him about this moment, and he said, you know what? I I knew I was losing you. You had become so comfortable at lying and hiding. I knew I was losing you, and he said, I saw you affecting the rest of your brothers and sisters. So I knew in that moment I had to do something drastic to protect the family and correct you. I had to do something drastic in that moment to protect the family and to correct you. Was that loving? It didn't feel like it. But I graduated with honors, so I'm thankful for him now. Here's the thing. This dark cloud is invading this reassembled community. It's just pressing in. And it's an inauthentic, it was lacking authenticity. There was lying and deceit now invading into this new community like a virus. In verse three, it says this of chapter five. Peter confronts him and says, why did Satan fill your heart to make you lie to the Holy Spirit? So the Satan was trying to get a foothold in this community because the Spirit of God was moving. Things were happening. How do I get it? I need a foothold in. In verse 30 of chapter 4, it says that the community was filled with the Holy Spirit. In chapter 5, it says Ananias is filled with Satan. Filled with Satan. 
What a contrast. The great British theologian John Stott said, if the devil's first tactic was to destroy the church by force from without, his second was to destroy it from falsehood from within. And Luke ends this story, Silverina read it in verse 11, which seems to be the most no-brainer verse in the Bible. After Ananias and Sapphira have just been walked out dead from the church community, it says this, great fear came upon the whole gathering. No kidding. No kidding. And all who heard about these things. Luke does this often. If you read the Gospel of Luke and, and Acts, he often talks about when people encounter God, they're terrified. They're afraid. You can't get 12 verses into Luke's gospel when it says this, Zechariah was troubled and terror-struck when he saw an angel of the Lord. A little bit further, the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terrified. Whenever you encounter the power of God, we quake, friends. We shake in those moments. You only approach God and his power with humility and authenticity. Or it's dangerous. See, as it turns out in this newly reassembled community, everyone is welcome, but not every behavior is welcomed. Everyone is welcomed. Guys, I still want to be that type of church. I see that in the Gospels. I see it in the person of Jesus. Who shouldn't be welcomed into this community? I already know we have more things not in common in this room than we do have in common. We have different political alliances in this room. We have different theological beliefs in this room. We have different ideas of how the world should operate in this room. We see from different cultural lenses, generational lenses. We see from different gender lenses. We see this world quite differently in this room. And we're to be unified around this one person, Jesus. And all of a sudden, all the things that divide us become secondary issues to the primary issue of knowing and following Jesus and making Jesus known in this world. So Ananias and Sapphira are in a community that they don't fit in. They don't fit in it. They lack the authenticity, the generosity, the holiness, the power there's a lack of authenticity, and it's threatening to sever the unity of the church and short-circuit the mission of the church. So the question I asked earlier is, in what ways does this happen today? Does something die in you, friends? Every time you act inauthentic? Does something die in you when you treat everything about God just as common? as expected, entitled? Does something die in you when you close your hand up and you don't live a generous life? Does something die in you when you just seek the power to use it for your own end, not a greater end? And the story of Acts 5 would say, yeah, a little something dies in you in those moments. A little something is incongruent with how God made you to be and made you to be known. See, this community is called a church. And it's not a religious organization. We're part of an organization. But a church was always a community of people, a collection of people. And you're online, you're in person today. And we're to be holy. We're to be uncommon. We're to be different. Because we serve a holy God. 
And we're to make him known to this world. And so I, I wish there was less baggage around the word holy. It's not about our purity laws and because it automatically goes there and behaviors and rules and regulations. All, everyone needs boundaries. Boundaries are good. They're meant to protect you. But I wish we thought postures right away. You know you met a holy person when you felt loved by that person. That's a holy person. You know what a holy person is? Someone's got their hands wide open and they're generous, the people around them. Holy people are patient people. Holy people are gentle people. Holy people, see my holiness rules didn't go far enough. They sought to control the sin elements without transforming the heart essential elements. And that doesn't work. See, this passage I think reveals a necessary tension that's hard to live in. How can God be all loving and get angry like that? But we know that love and anger don't, they can coexist, don't they? I mean, my dad was angry at me. Why? Because he loved me. If you see someone hurting themselves or damaging themselves, it'll make you angry because you're going to want to protect them in those moments. I like what Becky Pippert says. She said this, anger isn't the opposite of love, hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but is settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the inside of the human race that he loves with his whole being. God's justice, his wrath, his anger flows from his love. It flows from his love. Like my dad, he loved his family enough to confront me and deal with it. God is doing that today. The question is, how are we taking God's kingdom values to this world? Here's what I thought we'd do. In a moment, our elders are going to come and pray. And I believe God's spirit is here right now. The same spirit that was in that room with Peter, Ananias, and Sapphira. I don't say that about fear. I say that about potential. That's incredible. God's presence is in this room today. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray with our elders. If you have, you're going through something, you need a breakthrough. I believe God's power is here. But before we do that, what I thought is, what if we just had a moment where we confessed our sin? What if we just confessed that we don't always live a generous life? You know, sometimes I, you can be very generous with your stuff, but not generous with your words, right? And it's amazing how we can cut down people, and myself included, so easily, there's a lack of generosity in our words. Lack of generosity maybe with our stuff even. I wonder how many of us live inauthentic lives. We're hiding and we're lying. We know it. Man, I've been there. This is the one space where you don't have to do it. So if you're online, I'm going to invite you to pray with me. In person, pray with me. This is going to be a simple prayer. You can, if it helps, sometimes that helps me to close my eyes and bow my head you can or you cannot. It's up to you. I'm not going to tell you what to do. Jesus, I thank you that you came to reestablish a community where I didn't have to hide. Where I could be known. Where people could even see the good, the bad, and the ugly of me. And I could find a community that I could still be a part of. But I recognize in me are some things, God, that put a barrier between you and me 
And I want to be able to go into your presence without reservation, without fear. So God, you're not looking for perfection, and I can't provide that. But you are looking for authenticity and humility. And I can provide that. So I come to you such as I am. I get angry at people. I judge a lot of people who see the world differently than me. I think I'm hurting them or getting back at them, but I'm just toxifying my own spirit every time I rant about them. I know that I hide. People know versions of me. They don't know me. I'm scared to death to let anyone know me for real because I'm afraid of what they might see. God, I want to believe you're generous, but I don't live like you're generous. My fists are more closed than they're open to people. In this moment, I invite your grace to kiss my soul, to restore me, to forgive me, to transform me. I do things that I know are not behaviors of people that are from your, your new community. And God, I try, 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 try to stop. I try to modify my behavior. But in this moment, I just come humbly before you and just say, would you transform my heart? Change the things I love and like so that I love what you love. I like what you like. I want what you want. I'll love like you love. I, I just bring my life before you today. And Holy Spirit, I ask for a restoration and a cleaning now. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time. Thank you.